Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Shut the Funk Up podcast. I am the well-fed boy, and I am solo today because we are going to be doing something a little different than we normally do. Uh, This is something that I have been wanting to do for quite a while um it's a little bit of a different format um uh, jordan is not here today with us he is seems like he's on baby duty more and more which is fine we won't uh fault him for that he he is a father a father first and a podcaster second so that is a okay uh, with me, but it also gives me the opportunity to uh, do some of the other stuff that I've been wanting to do. So, um, I, you know, I have a, a running list of peacocks that I always want to do on this show, and there's uh, many of them that are either peacocks that are near and dear to my heart, or they just. They've got some girth to them. They've got a lot of meat and potatoes in their stories and whatnot. So I don't do them a lot of times on our regular episodes because they would take up pretty much a lot of the the episodes. And we like to do, you know, have the banter and then, then do the musical spots, spotlights and the peacocks and talk music. We like to have fun, like the, you know, you move it all around but i've always i still want to do those peacocks and bring those to you so you guys know so what i'm going to introduce to you guys now is um a little a little thing that i think we're going to call uh a private peacock session you know or or maybe we'll call the private peacock edition if you will where um, it, there'll be episodes and I'll put, and I'll just put next to them, private peacock edition where it'll just be me pretty much going, doing a, a, a an elongated, um, uh, a more detail oriented peacock session. So there won't be any of the fun banter, I guess, if you guys come here for that, it'll be more of a delve into the musical side of this podcast. So Hopefully you guys dig it. Um, if you don't, too bad, so sad. Is is this is a musical podcast, and um, unfortunately for you, it's uh, ran by me, so I get to do kind of whatever I want. What do you think about that? No, but uh, yeah. So if if you don't if you don't want to do do uh, music stuff and learn about really cool artists then one, I feel bad for you, and two, I guess you can skip over the episode, but uh, I don't encourage that. Um, But let's jump into this week's Peacock in Music.
Okay, this week's Peacock in Music is one of my favorite bluesmen of all time. He was introduced to me at a very, very early, uh, very early on young age in my childhood. Um, as you could hear there, I was, I was and, have, and as always have been enamored by the way that this man plays the harmonica. Uh, like many Chicago blues heart players, he approached this instrument like it was a horn. Um, he preferred single notes to chords. He used the, the harp for soloing. Um, he was very intense, concise, serious with his harmonica playing. Um, he was known for the purity in his tone, his sustained breath control, his unique ability to bend notes at his will. He's one of the very few blues blowers that played his harmonica actually upside down, meaning the lower notes were on the right side instead of the left side. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about the one, the only, Paul Butterfield. And when I go through this peacock, you'll hear me pretty much referring to the harmonica as the harp, H-A-R-P, the harp. That is what you call it. That's what people call it. It's not, when I call it the harp, I'm not talking about a harp string instrument that you see uh, people playing in orchestras or whatever. Um, when you want to uh, abbreviate or shorten the word harmonica, you call it the harp. So don't get confused when you keep hearing me refer to it as the harp. Uh, and I digress. Paul Von Butterfield, born on December 17th, 1942 in Chicago, Illinois, raised in the city's Hyde Park neighborhood. He was the son of a lawyer and a painter. His household had no TV, and the only music allowed to be played was classical. He uh, attended the University of Chicago Laboratory Schools. He studied classical flute uh, under the tutelage of Walfred Kujala, who was a member of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra for 47 years. And studying uh, that classical flute early on and learning it uh, would go on to be very beneficial in learning and knowing how to use his breath and playing the harmonica. Um, uh, but Paul was a bit of a troublemaker, actually, uh, early on in school. He loved playing pranks on his teachers. Uh, one of the biggest ones was he would, uh, he would throw the teacher's chairs out the window. So when they would come in for class to start their, uh, to start the, the day or to start the studying, the teacher's chair would be thrown out the second story of the window on the ground. They would have no idea what to do it. Everybody in class loved it. He, um, he'd ball up, ball up wads of papers and throw them across the classroom as we all used to do. He was a little bit of a, of a, a little bit of a troublemaker there early on. And uh, a nice quote that was in his senior, uh, or it was his senior quote in his yearbook, which is a little foreboding. Um, 
uh, it, it, it read, I think I'm better than the people that are trying to reform me. So that just goes to show you of the, uh, of the type of man or boy or whatever you want to call him that he was. But upon graduating, he did graduate. Paul Butterfield was also, he was also an athletic guy. He got a track scholarship to Brown University which was located in Providence or is located in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, however, a knee injury caused him to leave and transfer to the university of Illinois. But that actually, uh, was helped into his advantage and was a little bit more beneficial to him because he was now closer to Chicago and closer to the music scene. And so he would go to class five days a week and then every weekend drive to the city, go to his blues bars. And then that eventually turned to four days and then eventually three days doing going to class and then eventually two days and then finally just dropped out and pursued uh, music full time. So it was a bit of fate, I think, with that knee injury, if you will. Um, but he uh, he met us a, a, a guitarist and singer songwriter Nick uh, Gravenitis, um, who later on uh, would be best known for his work in Electric Flag as their lead singer. Um, but both men shared uh, an interest in the authentic blues music. Uh, by the late 1950s, both of the both both of those men were uh, visiting all the blues clubs in Chicago. Music musicians such as Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Little Walter, Otis Rush, um, encouraged them and occasionally let them sit in on jam sessions with them. Uh, the the pair soon started performing uh, as Nick and Paul in college area coffee coffee houses. And also at a little thing called twist parties, which I'd never heard of. I guess they back in the day in the 60s, you know, when they say do the twist, they were like little dance parties. They're called twist parties and they were very popular at the time. In the early 1960s, Butterfield met aspiring blues guitarist Elvin Bishop. Bishop actually has a pretty cool early story of Paul uh, when he, uh, you know, kind of switches over to uh, playing the harmonica. And uh, Elvin Bishop says he was playing more guitar than harp when I first met him. But in about six months, he became serious about the harp. And it seemed to he got just as good as he is now in that six months. He was a, just a natural genius. This was in 1960 or 1961. By this time, Butter had been hanging out in the ghetto 
for a couple of years and he was a part of that scene and getting accepted. Eventually, Butterfield on vocals and harmonica and Bishop accompanying him on guitar. They were offered regular gigs at Big John's, a folk club in the Old Town District on Chicago's near north side. With this booking, they persuaded bassist Jerome Arnold and drummer Sam Lay, both who were from uh, Howlin' Wolf's touring band, to form a group with them in 1963. Uh, their engagement at the club was highly successful and this, uh, this brought some, some good attention to them and it actually got the attention of a, a fairly well-known record producer at the time in the name of Paul Rothschild. Rothschild is actually most at that, that, that time, most well-known for being the uh, producer of the very first five albums of The Doors. So, No Schlepp himself definitely had an ear for what he was, uh, uh, what, 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 what he was hearing. Um, but uh, Butterfield uh, met and occasionally sat in with uh, guitarist Mike Bloomfield. Uh, Paul uh, Butterfield actually met Bloomfield through Elvin Bishop. Bishop, uh, as many were at the time, was a poor blues musician and uh, used to get all of his guitars at uh, at pawn shops, basically. And Mike Bloomfield kind of came from uh, a a well-off family, and his family owned a bunch of pawn shops all around Chicago. And Bishop went into one day went into looking for a new guitar to one of the pawn shops that Bloomfield's uh, family owned and Mike Bloomfield was there working as a clerk and Bishop saw a guitar behind the counter asked if he could see the guitar if he could try it out um Bloomfield handed him the guitar and Elvin Bishop started playing some blues licks and uh Bloomfield immediately recognized that this guy you know knew his blues and said to him hey man you like you like the blues 
uh, you know, I, I, I do as well. And he passed the guitar back over to Bloomfield and Bloomfield started playing his licks. And, um, you know, that was the, the start of the, of the connection between Paul and, uh, Mike Bloomfield, uh, meeting up. But what really, uh, what really, um, advanced the whole entire thing was Paul Rothschild saw Bloomfield and Butterfield playing together and he saw that chemistry between the two and Rothschild went to Paul Butterfield and said, you got to bring this guy, Mike Bloomfield, you got to bring him into the band, the guy, you two together, you guys are amazing. So as soon as, uh, you know, Paul Butterfield brought in Mike Bloomfield to the band and I know the Butterfield Bloomfield thing is probably already getting a little confusing, but just stay with me. As soon as the they brought Bloomfield into the band, the they soon signed to Electric Electra Records. But no sooner did they sign to Electra Records, uh, Paul Butterfield actually got a freaking draft notice. In the mail, he got drafted to the Vietnam War, and it was pretty heartbreaking for him because, you know, he never thought that he was ever going to be able to even get a record deal. He was he was totally happy playing music, but he never even thought a record deal was possible. And then now, with now knowing that it was possible, this was a huge blow to him. But uh, in walks Jenny McEwen a local bartender at a blues club that Paul often played at. And she offered to marry uh, Paul Butterfield because at the time, in the beginning, the very first draft that they did for the Vietnam War, uh, they were drafting unmarried men first. So she said, hey, I'll marry you. And uh, so you don't have to, you know, get drafted to the war. But and but what had started out as kind of a little bit of a handshake, business agreement, marriage, whatever you want to call it, they eventually they did fall in love. And um, Jenny did, um, they did have a child together, um, uh, uh, Lee, Lee Butterfield. So, you know, a little bit of a nice romantic, uh, you know, ending to that. So uh, that was that that Jenny really ch forever changed the trajectory of Paul's life. And I think that's very important to recognize that because there we might not have ever had Paul Butterfield blues band if uh, if that uh, if Jenny, the local bartender, didn't didn't step in. Uh, but soon after inking that record deal, he um, he also signed with an established manager by the name of Albert Grossman. Grossman uh, also had other acts uh, under his um, umbrella that he had managed. Uh, Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin, the band. And he was also the man who developed and put together the folk group Peter, Paul, and Mary. So... No, uh, no schlep himself at all. Um, but their first attempt to record an album came in December of 1964. It didn't go well. Did not meet uh, Rothschild's expectations. They were tr they 
They were trying to capture that live feel, so they were doing live recordings, and it just what didn't didn't sound good at all. Um, so Rothschild um, went to Jack Holtzman, the Electra president of Electra Records, and said, "You know, we got to do it again. We didn't get a good recording." So uh, Holtzman said, "Okay." So in the spring of 1965. Uh, the Butterfield Blues Band recorded at the Cafe Agogo in New York City. And that one failed to satisfy Rothschild again. He, you know, he was, you know, he was the record producer. He didn't like it. He knew what was good. He knew it was bad. He said, that's a no-go. So he went back a third time to the president and said, please, 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 please let me do it a third time. We still did not get the sound. And reluctantly, uh, Jack Holtzman, the president of Electra Records, said, fine. Okay, go ahead. And they finally got it right on the third time. Third time was a charm. And that came the inaugural year of the Newport Folk Festival. And... Uh, that festival actually kind of came together because uh, the, their manager, Grossman, Albert Grossman, um, kind of joined forces with uh, some of the other big-time uh, local, uh, uh, local promoters in, in Newport, and they, they basically made this Newport Folk Festival. It was a sister festival, sister event to the already popular Newport Jazz Festival. Um, and so the Paul Butterfield Blues Band... Uh, at just in the last minute, they got booked to perform uh, in July of 1965. Come here for no trouble I just want my party I walk all night long But it's boy in mine I walk all night long My body's boy in mine I was looking for my woman and as the story goes, the well-known folklorist and radio personality Alan Lomax was introducing was introducing the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. He was a traditionalist uh, when it came to music. He was very unhappy with white people playing blues music, especially white people playing blues music with amplifiers. Um, and he, he also didn't like it because on already on the bill uh, for this festival, there were many black blues artists that were playing, that were playing acoustically. So he really didn't like, uh, didn't really, wasn't too fond of already the idea of the Paul Butterfield Blues Band playing. And he was the guy that would go up and introduce all the bands. And when he went up to go introduce the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, his delivery was uh, less than satisfactory. 
And he actually goes up and he says, this is how he introduced them. Okay, you saw the real thing. Now here are some white boys from Chicago who are going to try to do it with amplifiers. can uh you know speculate that pissed off their manager albert grossman and uh, albert grossman uh went right up to alan lomax and confronted him and they immediately got into uh, a wrestling match fighting uh rolling all around the ground uh and as witnesses said they were rolling around and tussling the whole entire start of the band's set. So just imagine that scene of those two rolling around fighting as the the Butterfield Blues Band is uh, rip-roaring in the background trying to prove what this guy, this this uh, schmuck uh, just said, trying to prove them all wrong. But Maria Moldar and her husband Jeff, who later actually toured and recorded with Butterfield, recalled the group's performance as stunning and it was really the first time that many of the mostly folk music fans that were there at the festival had heard high-powered electric blues like this before and one of the people that were one of the first to hear that was uh, none other than Bob Dylan who was playing the festival later on uh, the next day and uh, Bob Dylan thought the, that their set was so great that he actually invited the band back up to play a, a few songs with his band uh, so they can have a little bit of electric performance. So this, uh, you know, you know, as everyone knows, Bob Dylan in the beginning, he played the harmonica and the acoustic guitar. He was a folk guy. You know, the folk music was all acoustic guitars and social issues there was no no one ever plugged in like that so um the butterfield blues band were the first band to really turn uh turn bob dylan on to electrifying himself which he eventually would go on to do and uh that was actually met with a lot of uh a lot of pushback from the folk uh the folk uh uh i guess you would call them the purest the, the folk purists they didn't like that but it was the butterfield blues band that really planted that seed in bob dylan and uh bob dylan even uh, asked michael bloomfield uh to play with him he tried to uh tried to uh pluck bloomfield out of uh paul's band but uh bloomfield turned down bob dylan 
he told Bob, he said, I like playing the blues too much, man. Uh, and with Butterfield in this band, I get to do that night in and night out. So uh, Mike Bloomfield turned out the great Bob Dylan to play with Butterfield. So that just goes to show you the chops and the uh, the regard that that Butterfield had and 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 uh, in, in in that blue scene early on in the '60s. Uh, but the band's debut album, the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, was released in 1965, reaching number 123 in the Billboard 200 album chart. At this time, the band had a residency at the Golden Bear, and every night at the Golden Bear, their opener was a very little-known at the time comedian by the name of Steve Martin. That was probably a nice little little combo. I, I, I mean, anyone who, who was there to see that one was was probably in for a treat. But uh, in 1966, they released their second album, East West. Uh, this one reached number 65 on the charts. And this one really put the band on the map. It's, uh, it's you know, the electrified, electrified blues meets psychedelic rock sound. And it also solidifies the original band's uh, lineup, which includes Paul Butterfield on lead vocals and harmonica. You got Michael Bloomfield on lead guitar. You've got Elvin Bishop on rhythm guitar. And then you've got Jerome Arnold on bass and Billy Davenport on drums. I mean, just Butterfield, Bloomfield, and Bishop alone. I mean, that's an absolute power trio. Those, I mean, it's it's pretty incredible to have those big three all in one band at one time in in their prime, really, because as we'll get into it, uh, they all do go off to do their own things but man what an absolute delight to have those those three all in one place at one time that those are the things in music and in the history of music that you just can't take for granted i swear that's incredible but um in 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 england in in november of 1966 butterfield recorded several songs with john mayall and the blues breakers who are a are a big favorite on the podcast here um, Butterfield uh, and Mayall both contributed vocals to the album and Butterfield's uh, Chicago style blues harp was featured on four songs um, and that album is called John Mayall's Blue Breakers with Paul Butterfield and was released in 1967 and that is one if you are digging at the record store and you see that record you buy that record Okay, you don't you don't need to play it. You don't need to if it has a couple scratches, it's all good. You put that one under under your armpit and you keep it moving. Concert promoter Bill Graham, man, he uh, he was a huge, huge, huge concert concert promoter. He was the guy that 
you know, made the Fillmore West out in Chicago and the tons of other venues out there in San Fran, or I'm, I'm sorry, the Fillmore West out in San Fran, um, and tons of other venues out there really established a huge scene for musicians. He loved, 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 loved the Paul Butterfield Blues Band and booked them at a ton of San Francisco venues, all of his. And that West Coast connection was actually super important and it was really huge because it opened the door for a ton of other blues and especially Chicago blues artists and musicians that were over on the East Coast to come and be able to play the West Coast because, you know, a lot of those guys, those East Coast guys were only playing, you know, in the South and in Mississippi and in Chicago and stuff. And that was it. And they were playing little blues bars and juke joints. But when Butterfield went over there to California and made that connection with Bill, with Bill Graham and that and opened up that audience to this blues sound it created, you know, like I said, and opened the door for these blues guys to go over there and play these bigger venues. And it was, it wasn't, if it, it was, it was only because Butterfield was able to do that. He was the, he was huge in, in, in opening doors like that for so many other artists. He did that constantly throughout his whole entire career. Uh, you know, you didn't know it at the time, but when you look back on it, he was, you know, he did huge things for the blues community and the blues scene. Um, but uh, again, the Butterfield Blues Band changed its lineup with Arnold, the, the bassist, and Davenport leaving. And Bloomfield, he goes on to form his own group, Electric Flag. Um, and they added uh, bassist uh, Bugsy Moe and drummer Philip Wilson and saxophonist David Sanborn and Gene Dinwiddie. Now... This marked a very significant change in the band's sound because now they had a horn section. Um, you had this, you had this amazing saxophone and trumpet and horn section on top of this rip roaring, you know, blues rock band. So you can imagine the power now that this band was really, you know, playing with. And that uh, lineup rec um, recorded the band's third album. The Resurrection of Pig Boy Crabshaw in 1967. And it was Butterfield's highest charting album, reaching number 52 on the album chart. Uh, and But the next, the next album, their fourth album, In My Own Dreams, released in 1968, is my personal favorite album by them. It again continues to move away from the band's Chicago blues roots towards a more soul-influenced, horn-based sound. Um, it's got a ton of jazz, uh, jazz, jazzy roots and stuff going into it. It really shows, you know, the full spectrum of what that band was capable of. And Butterfield really only sings on three of the songs on the album. And that one, it still reached number 79 on the, on the Billboard chart. So again, you know doing well it's it's it, again it's my favorite one it's it's it to me it's the most complete album from front to back and uh it's it it's 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 beautiful there I, I that's an album that when i put it on i i hear something different every single time i play it but um after that album at the end of, at the end of 1968 elvin bishop he finally leaves the band to go off 
and uh, do his own thing. Um, because I get, he was a power, he was a powerhouse guitarist in, in his own right too. Um, and I believe we did a peacock on him before, but, uh, the Butterfield blues band, uh, you know, it, it goes on. They were invited actually to play Woodstock festival, August 18th, 1969. They performed seven songs. They did not appear on the, uh, you know, the famous Woodstock documentary that everybody knows and has seen, but they were there. After the release of another soul-influenced album, Sometimes I Just Feel Like Smiling, in 1971, Paul Butterfield Blues Band, they disbanded. Um, uh, after the breakup, 
uh, and no longer under contract with Electra. Butterfield retreated back to Woodstock. He bought a place back in Woodstock, New York. Um, and there he eventually formed another va- another band called Paul Butterfield's Better Days. And from 72 to 73, uh, the group recorded the album Paul Butterfield's Better Days. And they also recorded It All Comes Back. Uh, this was released on Albert Grossman's Bearsville Records. And the albums uh, reflected the influence of, you know, of, of the new band and of the new lineup. It was more explored more roots and folk-based styles, but it also, you know, we, we're, you're now in well into the early 70s here. It, it delved into some, into some very funky, funky sounds too. Um, in 1975, though, uh, Butterfield uh, joined Muddy Waters to record uh, Muddy's last album for Chess Records, which was called the Muddy Waters Woodstock album. And that album was recorded at Levon Helms, who was the drummer for the band. That was recorded at, at his Woodstock studio with members of Muddy Waters' touring band. And that uh, that album, recording that album, was actually really was really big for Paul. It was a, it was a huge honor for him because Muddy was his mentor early on when Paul was coming up in Chicago in the blues scene. Muddy took him under his wing and showed him all the ropes, and uh, sh- and, and and introduced him all the people and. And so that was really big for Paul to be able to come back and play on that last uh, on that last album for Chess Records on, for for Muddy. I'm ready. Yeah, yeah, let's roll. All right. All right. Rolling, Ma. We're rolling. Dictate your love and your money. Dictate your sugar and your honey. From your bones that take the shit off your back. Hey, how come people act like that? They take your phone and your crowd. They take everything that you got. The band's manager, Albert Grossman, stopped paying the bills over at Bearsville Records after the death of Janis Joplin. Paul Butterfield's Better Days, uh, that band soon dissolved with no more money left over, uh, nothing to show for their years of hard work. Allegedly, you know, Grossman was quietly stealing money, but, you know, it was never proved. Um, at this point, Butterfield started drinking heavily. Uh, he was snorting cocaine, trying to keep up um, with his rock star lifestyle. 
1976, Butterfield actually performed at the band's uh, final concert, The Last Waltz, which was recorded by or uh, film um, directed by uh, Martin Scorsese, and it was um, uh, you know the the band's uh, final concert, and Paul played on Mystery Train. And he also played uh, backing for Muddy, Was- uh, Muddy Waters on Manish Boy. And again, Butterfield was very proud to be a part of that farewell performance. Um, he kept up his association with uh, all the, you know, a lot of the, the members of the band, touring with uh, Lee Von Helm and the RCO All-Stars in 1977. And uh, touring with Rick Danko in 1979. Rick Danko was the was a Canadian musician, bassist, songwriter, singer, and he was a founding member of the band. And also during the 1960s, uh, Rick Danko performed as a member of the Hawks, backing Ronnie Hawkins, and he was also in uh, Bob Dylan's band. So um, Rick Danko and Ball Butterfield they linked up, and a 1984 live performance was actually recorded. Uh, and released uh, as Live at the Lone Star. The 1980s uh, brought that's that though that that soon started his downfall. In the beginning of 1980, uh, Paul Butterfield underwent several surgical procedures to relieve his peritonitis. Uh, peritonitis is a very serious and um, super painful um, inflammation of the intestines. It, it's uh, basically. It was caused by the years of his alcohol and drug abuse. The lining of his intestines were completely eroded. Um, he was strongly opposed to doing heroin as a band leader, um, but he soon developed a, a pretty pretty bad addiction to it. 
the financial strain of supporting his drug habit um, was pretty much bankrupting him. And the death of his friend and one-time music partner, Mike Bloomfield, and his manager, or his ex-manager, Albert Grossman, both had shaken him. And while recording his final album, North South, uh, down in Memphis, Butterfield actually collapses. He, uh, but after he still continues to drink and do drugs quite heavily because he was in so much pain and all of his money went towards his habits, which eventually caught up with him after a show in Pittsburgh with Rick Danko. Uh, the day after that Pittsburgh show, Danko found him unconscious in his hotel room. He was rushed, rushed to the hospital but on May 4th, 1987, at the age of 44, Paul Butterfield died at his apartment in the North Hollywood district of Los Angeles. Um, an autopsy by the county coroner. It concluded that he was the victim of an accidental drug overdose with significant levels of morphine, which that was the heroin, uh, codeine, the tranquilizer, uh, Librium, and uh, big traces of, of alcohol in his system. My woman says it's a doggone shame the way some men bring their wives money and furs and jewelry. And I come home, ain't got a diamond. Smelling like a brewery, I'm drunk again. I've been drinking Gordon Gin. Well, I've tried to quit, but it ain't no use. I just can't cut that juice. Uh, a loose. In 2006, Butterfield was inducted into the Blues Foundation's Blues Hall of Fame, which noted for him that the albums released by the Butterfield Blues Band brought Chicago's, Chicago blues to a generation of rock fans during the 1960s and paved the way for late 1960s electric groups like Cream. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducted Paul Butterfield Blues Band in two, uh, tw uh, 2015, and, uh, you know, he's he, he should never be forgotten the guy is, you know, definitely the best white uh, uh, blues harmonica player of all time. You know, there's there's tons of other great ones, Little Walter, and uh, and and, and Sunhouse, and those guys out there. But you know, Paul could blow with the best of them. He was he he really was. He's just an amazing musician, and. He had soul in his voice. I know we talked about the harmonica a lot here, but when you listen and you can hear in the songs, the guy had so much soul. He had that blues sound in his voice. The guy could sing to just an absolutely incredible, incredible musician. So that is your Peacock in music this week. As always, you can go to Spotify, search Peacocks in Music. I do all the work for you guys. I add all the noteworthy tracks or songs discussed during uh, this spotlight. So, um, you know, go check out the playlist. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy Paul Butterfield as much as I do. And uh, let, uh, let let me know. Leave, uh, 
you know, email us, uh, podcast at gmail.com or give us a ring or hit us up on the Instagram or comment on, uh, on, uh, the YouTubes and whatnot. And, uh, let us know if you like the new formats. Like I said, uh, I hope you do because it's, it ain't going anywhere for a while. So, um, love you guys. Appreciate, uh, appreciate you guys always listening and we will see you next week. You know my woman, the one with the pretty hair, she, well, she had a wig on last time, so. Last year, hey man, where's you been? Down to your mama's house? No, you ain't been down to your mama's house, no, no, whole week. Now, that, that's, that's got to be a lie. Now, where's you been, woman? Tell me why you're driving. My all my love is true. All my love and a hugging, baby. It was meant for you. You know I'm not mistaken, baby, so I'll just make it brief.